Yell at me on Twitter. That's I'll take that. I'll take that. Hi, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes, and instead get up close and personal with the lesser known legacies and real life bad behavior of some of history's most notable and beloved people. Hey, Audrey. Hey, Elliot. Do you know what season it is? Um, Winter Wonderland. Is that what we decided last time? Uh, that's already passed. That's over. Okay. It is winter, but it is officially Spider-Man season. Oh, it's the annual tradition going back, I don't know, 14, 15 years. <laughs> Every Marvel movies. What Spider-Man are we on at this point? Like 24? 17? I don't know. I mean, we're on like our fifth Spider-Man. That's true. I, I um, Toby Maguire years old at this point, and Me too. Uh, he will forever be the awkward Spider-Man. Man, he, hey, do you remember that movie? He, it's so weird. I am nearly certain that is the only Spider-Man movie I have ever seen. Yeah, I think I missed Andrew Garfield. I missed entirely. Fully, um, fully. I never and saw those. Tom Holland is he one? He's the new one, yeah. The new one, yeah, because he's dating Zendaya, and they're yeah. both in it. Yeah, yeah, that was the thing. Like they met. I think I don't know if they actually met, but they were like, she's the Mary Jane in the in these movies, the Marvel movies. So they're like the on screen couple. I like being a good Spider Man. I will say, like uh, when I was a kid, like the whole like um, with gr- great power comes great responsibility. I was like, whoa, mm-hmm. that was One-liners. like pro- that was profound. Yeah, it imprinted on me early. I, I like that that vibe. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You got a a universal truth for good. Yeah. So, so I would I would say um, it probably yes. It's at some level deep in my psyche. I think uh, Spider Man is uh, shapes my entire worldview. Wow, that is actually way more profound than I imagined, and I wish I would have known that getting married to you. Um, <laughs> I might have reconsidered. If you, on our first date, had been like, Spider-Man has, it was a formative uh, shaper of my worldview, I would have been like, check, please. Thank you. It's been lovely. <laughs> and enjoy that. <laughs> um, too late now. Too late now. But, I mean, that is a perfect segue, right? Because... We are talking about one of the creators of Spider-Man this week. Wait, one of? I thought, like, I, I have to say, so I recently, because of this press splits, I saw on Twitter uh, a clip and in an interview of one person taking essentially full credit for inventing Spider-Man, like told the whole story about how he had to fight for this character and how nobody wanted mm-hmm. him until it was un- unexpectedly popular. And then it was like... He like his championing of this. Anyway, yeah. So when you say one of, that is surprising to me. Well, don't ruin the whole episode for us. Given that it is so near to me. Well, okay. So I haven't actually read the Spider-Man comic books or anything. But given that I, for some reason, have this childhood association with Spider-Man, it is nice that a new movie is coming out. I guess I'll probably see that one. I don't know. Um, yeah. And like a week it opens or something like that. Yeah. I've been at a whole big press splits. And and um it's no way home, another way home, some way home, something Spider-Man home. Spider-Man in space. I'm pretty sure it's Spider-Man in space is the name. Wait, it's just a crossover with Superman. It's actually just Spider-Man on Krypton, right? 
That yeah. would be kind of cool. Did I get it? Did I get it? <laughs> yes. So if anyone wants to go see the new Spider-Man Superman movie, um, this is a great episode to get ready for it. No, but it is. There is like the Spider-Man. I think it's No Way Home, right? Y- yeah. It's him and Luke Skywalker and they're trying to get back to the wormhole. <laughs> uh, and then they're suddenly in Dune. I feel like there's something about a hole in Dune. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're in the desert. That's right. The Dune desert. And, and then like the real plot twist here is that they end up in the 2001 Shia LaBeouf classic, Holes. Oh. Or some, I don't know if it's 2001. Plot twist. <laughs> plot twist. Don't spoil but, it for people though. Don't spoil it for them. <laughs> so we start with Spider-Man. He makes it to Krypton. Then he's with Luke Skywalker. They go through a hole. <laughs> they end up with Shia LaBeouf in the movie Holes. Yes. And and now and, we're really closing the loop. And then they get back on the Enterprise to make it home. This is the this is how it goes. This is how it goes. Exactly. God, I can just feel the nerd rage rising. I can just feel it through the microphone. Oh, well, if they're upset about that, then here's what I'll say. Have we got an episode for you? Yeah, have we got an episode for you? Please don't tell me if I'm wrong. I'm probably wrong at points in this. This is a th- this episode. This week's hero. Uh there's a lot of information about him. And this episode is just touching on a couple moments in his life at a high level. If I got the details wrong, I, I don't want to hear it. I'm going to I'll have to live with that. Don't tell yeah. me. Yell at me on Twitter. That's I'll take that. I'll take that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not on Twitter enough for people to yell at me. If they do, I'll see it in three or four weeks. Perfect. <laughs> anyway, this week's hero is Stan Lee. Elliot, what do you know about Stan Lee? I know Stan Lee is the main black character on The Office. He's a salesperson that sits across from Phyllis. Mm-hmm. Uh, he gets into a, a big showdown with Michael at one point. Uh, yes. When he tells Michael he is not putting away the crosswords. And mm-hmm. uh, then they bond. And it's a profound moment of racial healing in the 21st century. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, the actor, Leslie David Baker, who plays Stanley, once stopped me to compliment my dress at a charity gala. Oh, so, that's right. That's right. So I do have that. He liked my dress and so did his his friends who were with him. Yeah, I forgot that you went to that charity gala. That was very fancy. It was. It was. So quite a big moment. Wrong Stanley, though. Oh, no. What? <laughs> so this Stanley was actually born Stanley Martin Lieber. Eventually, he changed his name to just Stan Lee, like legally, the whole thing. His Got went by Stan, first name Stan, last name Lee. Oh, Stanley Martin Lieber, that's who you're talking about. Oh, okay, in that <laughs> case, yeah, I know that he is uh he is the progenitor of uh a lot of the famous Marvel characters. And he is the person who kind of took Marvel from the comic book era into the like blockbuster movie franchise era. And he was famous for while he was alive, basically making a, co- a cameo in every Marvel movie. Um, that's 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 what I know about him, basically. Well, we are going to dig into each one of those points in greater detail in the next 27 to 35 minutes. Well, then let's dive in. Stan Lee was born December 28th. Any idea what zodiac sign that makes him? Uh, yes, Yuletide. So close, it makes him a Capricorn. I would not have guessed that at all. I did not think Capricorn was, was I forgot that was one. 
every single week. Tell me right now off the top of your head all of the zodiac signs you can name because every week you're surprised by a different one. There's Aquarius from the song Age of Aquarius. There's Leo, which is when I was born. And there's Libra, which is when you were born. That's the ones I know. Well, I will do a little bit of educating right now during Audrey's Astrology Corner. Capricorns born on December 28th tend to impress others greatly with their energy and clear sense of direction. They are a shining example of calmness, self-assurance, and dependability to whom people often turn for for support or advice during a crisis. And that support is typically given without hesitation. The image that they tend to present to the world is one of capability and sophistication, but their competent exterior can often mask their intense search for a deeper and more fulfilling meaning to their lives. These people are often attracted to fields where they can help guide, enlighten, or delight others, and they may choose careers in the arts, the media, fashion, communications, or spiritual studies. Wow, that sounds like foreshadowing. Yes. So Stan Lee, at the time Stanley, was born in Manhattan, New York, to Romanian-born Jewish immigrant parents. They were a family of modest means. His father was a dress cutter, which meant, you know, during the Great Depression, there uh, was – it was tight. Things were tight. Um, Mm -hmm. And he and his brother shared a room, and his parents slept on a fold-out couch in their, like, one-room apartment. Okay. Wait. Dress cutter, though? You skipped over that. It was not a dressmaker, like cut up old dresses into scraps or something? No, no, no. Like cut the patterns. And then the seamstresses would sew them. So like a pattern maker, someone who cut the fabric to the right size and shape, um, the bones of the dress. Got it, got it, got it. Okay. So Stanley had a relatively, um, I would say, normal childhood. They moved around a couple times for his his dad's career. They ended up moving um, sort of out of Manhattan to a more affordable place. But he does okay in school. He claims he had success as a writer of short stories and essays in high school. He said he won, won a bunch of contests. Basically, at one point during his like sophomore or junior year, one of his teachers said, you're a good writer. You should do this for a living. And he notes that as being the moment that changed his life. Look at that. So he, he ends up graduating high school at like 16 and a half. And um, that same year, he became an assistant at what was then called Timely Comics. And Ooh. yeah, he gets his job because his cousin Gene was married to Martin Goodman. And Martin Goodman was a well-known comic book publisher at the time. So his uncle, Gene's father and Martin Goodman's father-in-law basically says like, hey, Stan graduated high school, give him a job. Good old nepotism. Good old nepotism. So he did things, you know, as a 16 and a half year old employee does. He like fills the ink wells and he runs errands in the same way there's like a Hollywood film intern stereotype. Get the coffee, get the lunch, do my laundry, blah, blah, blah. He's like proofreading and erasing pencil marks from finished pages, just like gopher type stuff. Got it. Wait, so this wasn't... Okay, for some reason, I thought you were talking about him getting a job in like a comic store to start, but this is like a comic like publishing house. Publishing house, yes. And after a year or two, he starts writing some scripts for Timely. And he actually does this under the pseudonym Stan Lee. And he does this because at the time, comic books, you know, at this point, it's like the late 30s, early 40s. Comic books were considered pretty low class or like juvenile. So they were not very widely distributed. And 
he was convinced that at some point in the future, he was going to write, quote, the great American novel. Oh. And he didn't want to have to explain why in his youth he was schlepping comic books. Oh, okay. So this wasn't just about like changing his name to be less Jewish to like fight anti-Semitism or something or to like, no. you know, preempt that. It was it was because he was embarrassed or he didn't want to be embarrassed by this work later in his life. Got it. Correct. Yeah. He didn't want to. I don't know. I, I would imagine it being like someone makes it to Hollywood and they're like, hey, I noticed that you had an OnlyFans 20 years ago. Got it. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So he's doing this. He's writing some scripts. He's still a gopher. And then... In 1942, when he's 19, almost 20, somehow he gets promoted to be the editor of Timely Comics. Good old nepotism. There we go. So from an assistant at 16 to the editor at 19. Oh, at 19. uh, Yeah, that's pretty implausible. He's doing this little editor gig. It's a small comic publishing house. It's not like he's managing a whole, I don't know, newsroom. There's probably two or three people working there. Okay, got and he's, it. he's still writing scripts. He's contributing. He's not just like signing off on things. Uh, while he's working there, he meets and marries a woman named Joan. Uh, they have two daughters. Only one survives childhood, but he is she is his only wife. They have a long, happy marriage. Just that's the whole story of his personal life during this time. Got it. Got it. Throughout the early 40s and 50s, the comic book industry is kind of on the up and up, right? So we're moving through right past World War II. People are coming out of the war. They're looking for entertainment. There's a huge baby boom. What is some like content media that starts to become more popular? So we have, you know, movies. We have um, comic books. Uh, Stan is still leading Timely which during this time becomes Atlas Publishing, which a few years later becomes Marvel. Oh, <laughs> wow. Okay. a series of up and downs. <laughs> are, are, are these like being acquired? Or are they just renaming or like what's is it other places they're merging with? I, from what I can tell, they're just renaming it. <laughs> OK, OK. <laughs> it does not appear that there's any sort of acquisition. It to me feels just like a series of rebrands. Um, well, history would suggest that they were moving in the right direction. Uh, Marvel seems like a much more successful brand than Timely. Yes. Yes. During the 40s and 50s, there are a series of um, now well-known characters and storylines that start to to come up. We have Captain America. There's the uh, Fabulous Four. Nope. There's the Fantastic Four, the Fabulous <laughs> Five or the Queer Eyes. Yes. We have the Fantastic Four. Um, and then in the 1960s, things really start to take off, both in terms of Marvel's success, the comic book industry's success, and the comic book industry controversies. Ooh, controversies. So here's a little backstory of the fallout that's about to happen in the 60s. 1958. A well-known comic book artist named Jack Kirby, who had on and off contracted some work with Marvel throughout the 50s, but was primarily working at DC Comics, got fed up at DC, didn't like the pay, didn't like the culture, says goodbye, Batman, and he comes to work full time at Marvel. And he did so despite having already some reservations about Stan Lee. It seems like a few years prior to him coming to Marvel, Stan 
had intentionally sabotaged Jack Kirby and one of his colleagues as they were preparing to put out this big project at another comic book publishing house. Oh, wait, what? There was no like hard proof of it, but Jack Kirby was like, yeah, he pretty much did. He like leaked this story about this new comic that was coming out. Regardless, the culture at DC was bad enough that he was like, I guess the lesser of two evils is working for this man that I fucking hate. Yeah, yeah, that like sabotaged me. So in 1961, after a few years of working at Marvel, Jack Kirby began expanding the Fantastic Four series, which according to a number of online sources like Wikipedia, revolutionized the comic industry, both in style and also the content. So I don't really know much about comic history, but the the analogy that was given was like, think back to, for example, Archie Comics at the yep. time. Archie you, and Jughead. Yeah, you can picture the style. That was pretty popular. And then think back suddenly to, you know, the Fantastic Four, the Hulk, like all of these, the the graphic imagery, like the difference in style was Jack Kirby introducing that to the world. No one else was doing that. Got it. Okay. So it's like the difference between like kind of more casual characters and then like people with big dramatic arcs in their yes. stories. Got it. And even and no, and even like their style, their drawing, right? So mm-hmm. if you if you go look at some of the superheroes, one of the reasons Jack Kirby left DC was because the DC folks were chastising him for things like, oh, your character doesn't have shoelaces on. But if you go look at the the drawings, they had movement. They were very clearly like uh, there was momentum in the art. You could see, you know, you could feel the the physicality of it just in the drawing. And it wasn't because of the details. It was because of like the scope, the, you know, it wasn't the shoelaces. It was the shading. It was the, the movement lines. It was all of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And Jack Kirby was like one of the very first people to do that. Okay, so because of the success of the Fantastic Four, Marvel, which at the time had been semi-successful but was still like niche because it's comic books and comic books are niche and then there's like subgroups of comic books. (laughs) Anyway, Marvel starts to like gain in popularity. At the same time, 1961, 62, Stan Lee and another one of his artists that he brought into the studio, Steve Ditko, are working on creating this character that apparently was formative in your worldview – uh, mm-hmm. Spider-Man. Oh, that's so interesting. Again, because I recently as part of all of this, there's a bunch of like press for this Spider-Man movie and Spider-Man just showed up in like Fortnite and then there's the animated movies coming out. Like Stanley, mm-hmm. there's this clip of him talking about the mm-hmm. origin of this character where he basically is like, I invented this and I came up with it and I put it in and nobody liked it. And then it got popular and then like I was vindicated. And you're saying okay. like these other guys were working on it instead? I'm about to be saying that for the next 15 minutes of this podcast. So buckle up. Oh, okay. Okay. Lee and Kirby are working on this. Spider-Man, it debuts in another series and it's the best-selling issue of that series. So Stan Lee goes to Steve Ditko and he's like, hey, man, you got to create an entire Spider-Man series, like all about Spider-Man. The Amazing Adventures of Spider-Man, brand new. Go for it. So Lee and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko are all working together on a variety of projects. At the time, they're creating like the Hulk and X-Men. And Lee is serving as an editor and what is described as like a sometimes storyline contributor. The other men are doing most of the work. 
pretty well documented. They're doing most of the work. So you can imagine the confusion and anger that both Kirby and Ditko felt felt when in 1965, Stan Lee is interviewed for the New York Herald Tribune. And in this interview, he not only takes all the credit for creating all things Marvel, he also stages this very bizarre story conference between himself and Jack Kirby. And this story conference makes Stan Lee a legend. In this like put on stage production, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby are in a conference room. And Stanley is like wildly leaping around the room, rattling off his story, pretending to punch stuff, like going over the top, like Wait, we're going to do this and then we're going to do that. Like like karate kung fu style, just like. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. And so Jack Kirby's in there and he's like kind of semi taking notes. But the whole time he's just sitting there kind of agreeing with Stan Lee and saying, OK, uh-huh. Yep. Sure. Great. Great. And it gets written up by this reporter that Stan Lee is this ingenious mastermind and all of these artists, Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, are just that. They're just the people who take Stan Lee's genius and make them visual. When the truth is that the storyline that Stan Lee was rattling off to Jack Kirby was written weeks before the story conference. The whole storyboard for that specific comic was already done. And Stan Lee was just reenacting, but with much more flair, the exact story in front of this reporter. Oh, wait. And so Jack, this is like already written. And, he's... and basically drawn, already done. Wow. And Jack Kirby is like not saying anything because they'd already hashed it out, right? So he's just sitting there trying to be agreeable for the media coverage. Sure, you know, sure. it's his boss. What's he going to do? Be like, yeah, man, you told me this shit three weeks ago. <laughs> yep, yep. And in fact, there's a Slate.com article called, quote, The Stan Lee Story That Tore Apart Marvel Comics by Abraham Reisman. And there's this little bit of information that comes out in this, in this article. And it's, quote, Jack said there was not a plotting session for a real issue, recalls Kirby's assistant and biographer Mark Evanier. They had already plotted the issue beforehand, and they were basically recreating it for the reporter. And one of the reasons Jack didn't say more in the meeting was he wasn't thinking about a story. He wasn't going to take anything home and draw that story. It was already done. Yeah. Indeed, according to Kirby, he was by that point primarily just dictating to Lee what he was going to do in a given story. And those meager plot conversations weren't actually happening in real life. They were all over the phone. So the journalist knew none of this and didn't even bother to find out. The journalist said, quote, I was so enchanted by the whole thing that the staged scene wound up as the central sequence in the Herald Tribune story. Oh, so like he just took it at face value that this like Kung Fu inspiration of like recounting the story was like the the scene as opposed to all of this work in the background where he'd been essentially having it dictated to him by the other guy. Yes. And in the same article, Stanley Wright takes down Kirby, Jack Kirby, and then he starts talking shit on Steve Ditko. And he says things like, quote, I don't plot Spider-Man anymore. Steve Ditko, the artist, has been doing the stories. I guess I'll leave him alone until until sales start to dip. Since Spidey got so popular, Ditko thinks he's the genius of the world. We were arguing so much over plot lines, I told him to start making up his own stories. Wait, so that's a really like backhanded way to be like he's doing the work, but it's uh, mm -hmm. it's because he's so full of himself. And he flat out admits like, I actually don't do Spider-Man anymore. I didn't make like... Maybe the first couple issues or series we worked together, but yeah, Steve 
Ditko is like the brains behind this operation now, fully, entirely. He does it all. Interesting. That same article, this uh, the one from 1965 in the Herald Tribune, not the one from 2020, talking about the article. <laughs> this is the original article. It goes on to talk about the success of Marvel as, quote, the Marvel Age of Comics. And essentially, it's a multi-page article that gives all credit to Lee and Lee only. And not only does the journalist never interview Kirby or Ditko, he actually insults them multiple times throughout the piece. What? For, yeah. For example, he says the, the journalist, not Stan Lee, the journalist, for some unknown reason, says, if you stood next to Kirby on the subway, you would peg him for the assistant foreman in a girdle factory. Oh, <laughs> yikes. I mean, that's just like, uh, it's just dickish is what it is. Yeah. And Stanley never like comes out and says like, hey, man, what the fuck? It's just like he just lets it exist. He doesn't correct it. And that's sort of his MO through the rest of his career talking about whether or not credit is due to him. It's not that he says like, oh, yeah, I did it all. It's just that when people say that or assume it, he doesn't correct them. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So he's just kind of like enjoying, enjoying getting the credit, uh, very like uh, sneakily. Yes. Yes. So this article obviously goes on to cause a huge riff at Marvel. On one hand, there's like Stan Lee and Marvel, and or Stan Lee and like the image of Marvel that helps improve the popularity of the comic book company and like the comic book industry altogether, but it also like completely degrades and humiliates the artists who are fully responsible for these comics in the first place. And not only that, this is when comics start to take off and Stan Lee is positioned as sort of the the hero that ushers in comic book industry success. And it solidifies in his mind that the more front and center he is, the more successful the industry is. Oh, right? so, so he's he, like, if I'm if I'm getting famous and we're doing well. Yes. And so he makes this very strategic decision where he's no longer going to be like the behind the scenes editor bullshit, where he's, you know, calling people and being like, hey, I have this idea for an issue. Write this down. And it's not even like a real script. It's just ideas. He decides what he's going to do is uh, be the face of comics. And so he starts to shift his workload as an editor to be more of like a director of Marvel and this figurehead where he's out talking on college campuses, going on tour, giving press briefings, like just putting himself out there as comic books are cool. I'm sort of this like dorky, relatable, quirky guy. You know, comics are not just for kids. They're for everybody. And I'm proof of that. And it works. It like really works um, <laughs> as evidenced by the fact that Everybody associates, or most people associate comic books with Stanley still. And they also associate the way that Stan Lee managed the Marvel Comic Studio with a very specific way to manage creative studios in general. And the way that he managed his creative studio, multiple studios later, has become known as the Marvel Method. And so this is when Stan Lee would brainstorm a story, either by himself or with an artist, then prepare like a one or two line synopsis, so not a full script. And then based on that synopsis, he would give it to an artist or a number of artists and be like, here, go make this. And 
just that's it just kind of like uh high level go go have him fight some person and then like the whole script and everything is the other guy's responsibility yes and maybe at the end stanley would go in and like change the dialogue a little bit or fill in some thought bubbles or or you know plot lines but that is completely reverse of how comics used to be made which is there was a script and then artists built comics based on that script and so he is offloading a ton of the actual creative work by having you know one or two ideas we all have good ideas imagine if you could go to a team of experts the best in their field and be like hey i have this idea and you need to make it this week he's like i'm the ideas man yes Yes. And so this allows them to crank out a ton of material. They're not slowed down by having to write multiple scripts and then have the artist create it and then get it edited and then recreate it. It's here's an idea. Artists go make it. And then Stan does the like final touches at the end and gets all the credit for it. Okay, so it is he's the ideas man. But also the big difference here is that instead of like painstakingly writing it as if it were a book first and then adding illustrations, it's like taking the idea straight to the artist's phase. And then they like that just speeds it up a ton. Ton. And so Lee even once said, quote, I dream up odd fantasy tales with an O. Henry type twist ending. All I had to do was give Steve Ditko a one line description of the plot and he'd be off and running. He'd take those skeleton outlines I'd given him and turn them into classic little works of art that ended up being far cooler than I had any right to expect. And of Jack Kirby, he said, quote, I had only to give Jack the outline of a story and he would draw the entire strip strip, breaking down the outline into exactly the right number of panels replete with action and drama. And yet, when it comes to taking credit for these heroes at the time and then throughout the rest of his fucking career, yeah. mm-hmm. Stanley is like, I had a hard time getting this published. No one wanted it, but I finally pushed through and now I'm a genius. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Like, I didn't realize he was on the record at points being like, oh, yeah, yeah, I basically just like, you know blurted something out and these guys turned it into art and then later even after having admitted that he's like oh yeah yeah, it was on me it was on me for sure for sure and so he's clearly not a good or fair collaborator but what he was good at was being able to harness the media and bring attention to marvel and so this acquisition of talent of kirby and ditko uh really did push the comic industry forward and it allowed him to take credit for one finding best in class talent and then acting like he's like giving them the opportunity to work for him instead of like working with him. Mm. He, he tries to like position his, himself as this like benevolent creator of art where these fantastic artists like get get to work at Marvel versus there would be no Marvel without them. And some comic historians argue that because uh, comic making right is like collaborative by nature, just in general it is, it always has been. It's impossible to separate creative attribution. And some people think like, oh, it really shouldn't matter who gets credit, which I don't know, might be an okay approach if like Stanley didn't court the credit. If he was like, yeah, I'm I'm basically having all these people do the work independently and then they were the ones that like got the glory for it. And like some comic historians, (laughs) I read a lot of articles by comic historians this week, (laughs) um, do credit him with creating an environment where the success of Ditko and Kirby was possible in ways that it wasn't at previous employers like DC Comics and and other publishing house. And it's true that there was like this mutually symbiotic relationship in terms of this creation of content. 
Stan Lee needed um, Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby, and they needed Stan Lee to get their work out there. But when it comes down to it, it's not even just about credit for credit's sake. Eventually, this lack of attribution or proper crediting impacted the livelihood and compensation of these artists. So at the time that the original comics were created, there wasn't this like compensation structure that included royalties, especially not for visual artists, yeah. maybe a little bit for like recording artists at the time, but I don't know, it seems a little dicey even then. And, you know, by the time a couple decades roll around, Marvel is licensing out the use of all of these folks' uh, images, right? So they're licensing out Jack Kirby's uh, The Hulk and X-Men and Fantastic Four. They're licensing out Spider-Man. They're licensing out all of these characters that Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko created that Stanley admits they created, at least are images, and they're not getting any royalties. Oh, so that, okay, so this is where it goes from like, oh, just being like, okay, he was fine. He was doing the publicity. He was making the the enterprise more famous and they were just kind of like, you know, not as important to the narrative publicly versus now like him taking the credit actually turns into money, which is a very different type of story. Yeah. And there's this, this um, book called Marvel Comics, The Untold Story by Sean Howe, which describes this disparity in even greater detail. And it points out that at the same time that, you know, 1965, 1970, all of this stuff is really taking off, Lee receives a five-year contract with a provision for a raise, while the artist, instead of getting a contract, were uh, allowed to receive a loan from Marvel's parent company with 6% interest if they wanted higher compensation. A loan? Alone. Yeah. Like if they wanted more money, they were contractors. They were not even full-time employees. Oh, what? This is bad and gross. And it if it happened just once, it would be like, okay, that guy sucks. But in an article by in the Daily Beast called Marvel Icon Stan Lee Leaves a Legacy as Complex as His Superheroes by Spencer Ackerman, he points out, quote, as self-deprecating as Lee was in his endless newspaper interviews, he conspicuously declined to correct journalists who saw his name in the comics next to credits as writer and jumped to the conclusion that Lee authored the Marvel Universe. Mm -hmm. And without those other artists getting credit, Marvel as a company did not have to compensate them accordingly. They did not have to employ them as full-time artists. They were able to just say like, oh yeah, Stan Lee did this and you're a contracted artist. Yeah, just the fact that like, as this thing is taking off, becoming more of like a cultural presence, the fact that these people don't even like actually work for Marvel is wild. Like they're, they are wild. the secret sauce, right? Like they are the ones who are actually doing the work. And the fact that they're like, yeah, we'll see if you have a job next week is ju just, it's just shocking. Yeah. So this happens for decades. Um, Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby both come back and forth to Marvel and fits and starts. They work for Lee as long as they can take it, and then they quit. They talk shit about him in the media, but then they always go back because it's a small world. Marvel's so please, the most successful. Yeah, like what other comic book companies are you going to work for? If you quit from DC and Marvel, you're you're kind of going to come back to one of them eventually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, finally, by the 80s, both artists leave uh, Marvel for good, which is just as well because at that point, Stan Lee decides... Uh, I'm tired of this comic book bullshit. It's time to take this to Hollywood. And he picks up and moves Marvel to California. 
And he decides what he needs to do is get all of these Marvel characters licensed into animations. So he ends up licensing Marvel throughout the years. Um, the one that they were apparently very unsuccessful at licensing. Do you uh, do you have any guesses about what the hardest to get made into animation or a movie was? Let me think. Okay, the hardest to get made into animation or a movie. Um, I'm going to say Microface. Okay, I don't know if that's ever made it, but Transformers. Transformers, really? Yeah, I didn't know it was a got, Marvel thing. They got rejected all through the 80s and 90s trying to get Mar or trying to get Transformers made into a cartoon and then a movie. Anyway, so he eventually is, worked out for them, it seems yeah, like. Yeah. By the 2000s, Marvel is struggling, like big struggling. Because Marvel is still just a publishing house. Um, and they're about to go bankrupt. So Lee takes this one big last swing and decides we are going to stop comic book creation basically almost entirely. And we are going to put all of our eggs in the basket of this X-Man of this X-Men and Spider-Man film series. Ooh. And we all know where that goes. Wait, now I'm just to be clear, um, what year is this? The early 2000s. Okay, so this is like the big first X-Men movie. Yes. And and I don't know if people remember, but when that happened, uh, there was not a Marvel Cinematic Universe. This is like the first big comic book mm -hmm. movie. And like there had been all of those disastrous DC Batman films. I don't want to say disastrous, but like they were all super campy, right? They were all like trying to be weird like the Ninja Turtle movies or something, right? Like it was just silliness. Mm -hmm. And this was the first time that like somebody took a comic book, which was like, again, seen as like more of a kid's thing, even if it was getting popular, and tried to turn it into like a serious film for adults that like had drama and like had And social presence. commentary. And social commentary, right? Because X-Men and is like explicitly about like prejudice and like societal pressure and like the othering of this group of people and like mm -hmm. the regulations around them. Like it's a very, very tied to like racial and ethnic tensions in the United States. Um, and yeah, it's, yeah. Well, when that came out, I remember it was like a big deal. Like yes. when it was successful, that was, that was huge. Yeah. And one of the things that Stanley or at least Marvel, I don't want to say Stanley and Marvel are are synonymous, but one thing that Stanley was explicit about and then Marvel has tried to, again, continue in its like explicit support of is there were Stanley was very willing to say like racism is bad. Bigotry is bad. Good for him saying racism is bad. I mean, like, I mean, yeah, right? it's just more than a lot of film studios are willing to do. But like he had this bit in on the back of all the comics or once a month on the comics called Stan Soapbox, where he gave social commentary on things happening. Like for a while, he tried to sit on the fence about the Vietnam War, whether or not it was good or bad. He wasn't he don't really want to take a side. And a bunch of people, adults who read his comics were like, pick a side. We need to know what side you're on. <laughs> I actually don't remember where he landed on that, but I think he was pro-war. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but during like racial tension in the 60s. By the way, who, he, who is like going to the back of comic books to like figure out their opinions about the Vietnam War? Right. Like like I get that like actually people. So here's what happened. Like one of the one of the marketing I don't want to say genius, but one of the marketing strategies that Stanley used was 
uh, this specific tool, this Stan Soapbox, where he was appealing to adults um, explicitly saying like, you know, comics, It look at me, if I like comics, all mature adults can like comics. It shows that you have an understanding of, you know, these complex issues and we're able to communicate those in Marvel that are accessible to kids in ways that are interesting, but also are social commentary that adults can can appreciate. And it like worked. Okay, so look, I'm not trying to like, you know, shit on having these like have a deeper deeper social commentary in them. I just think if you're one of the adults who's like, I really want to form opinions about the Vietnam War, please, Stanley, add something to the back of your comic books. Like, I don't think that's the first place I would be going to like formulate my opinions on complex geopolitical matters or like whether or not I'm pro or against the war. If I had to guess, it was more or less the readers already had an opinion. They wanted to know what Marvel's opinion was so they could either burn all their comics or get further like behind them. It wasn't like, tell me what your opinion is so I can have the same opinion. It was like, tell me your opinion so I can continue to support and or boycott your product. At least some of the people did one or the other, I'm sure. Yes, uh, always. So anyway, 2000s. We see the kickoff of this Marvel Cinematic Universe, as you mentioned, and it was born out of this desperation to save the concept of Marvel Comics, and it's successful, and it's successful in large part because of Lee's, you know, visionary leadership, and when I think about Stan Lee's legacy, to me, that's what it is, right? It is leadership. It's not creator. It's not sole creator. It is not the genius. It is leadership. Like at times really shitty leadership, but it is uh, him having the opportunity to elevate the work of all of these other people because that's what good leadership does. And he does that behind the scenes like he's has enough leadership skills to get the product created. He just also has enough ego to never give anyone else credit for it. Yeah. And, and like, you know, that leadership is fine. But the fact that he was basically like relying on contractors to go do all of the work that is celebrated and then not only like conveniently allows people to like give him credit and doesn't correct them. But eventually, as this goes on, he begins to more and more explicitly like take the credit. Public. Like there are lots of examples of him later in life just straight up like saying like, oh, yeah, yeah, it was all me when really he was like doing the publicity and the books and like not at all the creative visionary behind this. Exactly. And so although he was never an outright villain uh, in the comic world, he's not, I don't know, he's not abusing people. He's not cheating on his wife as far as we can tell. He's not, I mean, he's sort of like creatively abusing people, but he's not, he's (laughs) not super racist. He's not misogynist. Like, he is generally perceived as being an okay person. Everyone who understands Marvel Comics or the history of it understands that he's not a hero. And so there's this veteran comic writer, Jerry Conway. And in a 2016 profile for New York Magazine, he writes, Stan's gotten far too much credit. People have said Stan was out for number one, and to a very large degree, that's true. He's a good guy. He's just not a great guy. Mm. And so... For his absolute inability to give other people credit for the work upon which Marvel was built, uh, especially artists, which is probably arguably the hardest job, (laughs) uh, and the work upon which Lee himself built his own reputational legacy. Stan Lee is not my hero. 
Yeah, I mean, just the fact that, like, after basically being the hype man for this, once this is, like, takes off, becomes a social force, once the Marvel Cinematic Universe becomes, like, the Hollywood thing, the fact that he personally appears in all of the movies is just, like, just just in case you weren't clear who he wanted right. to get credit for. Like, it's... right. Uh, yeah, again, he's the face of it. But, like, there's ways to do that and, like, celebrate the people who are, like, the geniuses behind it and, like, have them share in the success. And there's ways to just, like, hog the limelight. And that definitely seems like where he ended up. Yeah, my understanding of him before this was, like, he was not only the brainchild behind all of these characters, but he was the artist, the creator. I didn't realize it was, like, just him spewing off a few lines, delegating it to professional artists, and then never really saying, hey, I didn't create this whole universe. Yeah, if he's like, go have Spider-Man fight an octopus, and then you get like Tobey Maguire. Like that's, yeah, he's not he's not the brains of the operation. No, not at all. So anyway, keep that in mind when you go watch the, the new Spider-Man, uh, Another Way, One More Way Home. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, spoiler alert, the, I think my favorite part of the Spider-Man movie is going to be when Ray shows up. But again, I'm just saying, just saying. Yeah. I mean, and if if anybody wants to go ahead and send me death threats, feel free to post this on Reddit and they can find exactly. us at Your Heroes Pod on all social media platforms. The most recent three Star Wars movies were the best of the entire nine. That's just, there we go, <laughs> oh, done. Oh, no. <laughs> now it's there's coming. Like, there's like that meme where, or like the, any meme where they light a fire and then walk away from it, just smirking. <laughs> That's yes. what you just did. You just exactly. lit a fire under people who care about something deeply and then you're like and watch it burn goodbye we'll see you next week yes and if our listeners would like for any of their other deeply held beliefs or um childhood heroes uh to be lit a fire where can they find us they can find us on social media at your heroes pod or on our website at meetyourheroespodcast.com yep and please like share rate review spread the word tell your friends And until next week, don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye.